Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to Thrive. My name is Kirsten Salgado, and I'm one of the campus pastors at Thrive New Britain, and I'm so excited to be bringing the word to you guys tonight. So um, a little bit, thank you, thank you. Oh, you guys are so sweet. <laughs> so, um, so a little bit about me. I know that you guys know bits and pieces, but I'm gonna go a little deeper tonight and I'm a little bit nervous. So um, I wanna just explain a little bit to you about, so we're talking about the series Unstable, and tonight, the topic that Judah gave me to teach on is being critical. And I was like, really, Judah? Of all the things you could have picked for me to cover, you're going to pick this one thing. And so just know if I get a little passionate and fired up, I'm preaching to myself just as much as I'm preaching to anyone else. So uh, just keep that in mind. So how I'm wired. I personally love how figuring out how things work, how people tick, how the human body works. I'm a full-time nurse, so obviously that's a lifelong curiosity of mine. Maybe it's genetics, maybe it's being raised by an engineer, I don't know, but I just love understanding how things work. And one of the things in particular that is kind of this small obsession of mine is uh, personality tests. I just really love them. I can really get into a good personality test. Some people are like, oh, no, don't put me into a box. I'm not going to take your stupid test. Don't tell me who I am. I just love them. And so um, there are a few tests that I've taken. And on multiple, multiple occasions, this theme has come up. In the Myers-Briggs uh, personality test, it brought up for me that I'm the type of person who always sees what could be better about the world? Doesn't that sound so lovely? Yeah, until you marry me, and then I just, everything could always be better. Great, so everyone just pray for my husband. Yeah, yeah. And then the other one that I've taken recently is the Enneagram test, and what do you know? In that personality type, it says that I have a propensity to have a loud, constant, berating inner critic. So not only am I critical of the outside world, I'm critical of the inside world. So yay, good for me. Um, but I've come to recognize when it comes to personalities that my personality type is not a fixed data point. It may shed some light into how I'm wired, but God didn't make any sort of mistake when he made me. And so there is a recognition that even though I have this, this thing that I'm like, oh, I would rather not, there is a gift in it. He's given me the ability to observe gaps and to hopefully be able to write them and fix them. So we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. So the main thing is that I've recognized that being critical as a lifestyle can be bad. Having a critical eye can be okay as long as our response is in line with God's word. And so that's what we're going to be looking at tonight because that's what matters to God is our response. So instead of seeing what's wrong in the world and sitting back on our couch with our clicker or our phone and our keyboard and, and looking at what is wrong in the world and complaining and gossiping and just pointing out what is wrong, he wants us to actually lean in. And so we're going to look at some of those things tonight. Also, I just want to let everyone else know, if you aren't my personality type, you are not off the hook. And here is how I know. Because very recently, we've all been watching the Winter Olympics, have we not? And none of us, I don't think, are out there on the slopes doing the tricks, the race, the curling, the skating. But no, we're able to sit in our comfy little couch with our favorite snack and our comfy blanket and go, oh, how could you fall? Oh, you missed that turn, that triple whatever spin. How could you? And it's so easy for us to sit in our area of comfort and look out at someone else's life work and go, oh, that could have been better. 
it is easy to be critical. In fact, the definition for a critic is a person who appraises the work of others. So again, we get to sit back as a critic, but that is not what God has called us to. God's plan is not in line with that. So let's turn to Galatians 5. In verse 15, it explains what can happen if we make a lifestyle out of being critical. It says, but if you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out, beware of destroying one another. And that seems like, okay, that's straightforward. Yeah, we shouldn't rip people apart. But when I got into some of the word studies and the definitions of the biting, devouring, and destroying, it was this buildup, almost this climax, creating a word picture that essentially what we're doing when we're criticizing people is literally consuming them, eating them alive. Guys, zombies? Really? That is not what we were created to be. So in your notes, I want you to write that being critical is spiritual cannibalism. It makes the whole body of Christ unstable. Just imagine if, if you were to see a person on the side of the road or anywhere eating a part of themselves, a leg, an arm, whatever, you'd go, that person's unstable. And you would probably be right. But that is what we are doing to one another when we are continually critical. Even in, um, like I said, I'm a nurse, when someone loses a toe, just a toe, it only takes one amputation for their balance to be so impaired that it's gonna result in another amputation and then another and then another because of that instability. And so we cannot risk that in the body of Christ. We cannot risk that we're going to impair the work that God is doing. Let's get on board and not be cannibals. <laughs> All right, so next, I wanna just point out that I've read the Bible cover to cover and I hope all of you will as well. And I have not found anywhere where it heralds criticism where it says that criticism is some sort of virtue. In fact, what we see in scripture over and over again, to the point I had to cut so many scriptures, is that we are to gently restore other believers. So there's kind of two categories here. We're supposed to gently restore fellow believers, and we're supposed to reconcile the world to God. So those are our two tasks, and we're going to be going over those tonight. So that is God's plan, is to restore and reconcile. Moving on to Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers and sisters, that's all of us. If someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore. Go ahead and underline that. That person, gently. But watch yourselves. Underline that as well. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. That word restore in this scripture is referring to making perfect, complete. Making someone what they were supposed to be in the first place. Restoring them to harmony with the body. And then next, so that's restoration of other believers. And then secondly, we have reconciliation. And we can find something about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now, now that we follow him. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. Woohoo! 
And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. Essentially, it's saying, Jesus is going, hey, I've reconciled myself to you. We've made ourselves right. Can you help me do that with the rest of the world? In verse 19, it says, For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. Hmm, aren't we grateful that he's done that for us? And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. Go ahead and circle reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors, his representatives to the world. And God is making his appeal through us. He's literally reaching out to the world through our life, through how we live. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. And that is what we should be demonstrating with our life. One thing I want to pause on is that sometimes when we see the word world, we think of the faraway worlds, the people across the streets, across state lines, in a different country. We think that's the watching world. But guys, the watching world is your coworkers, your close friends. It's your children. It's the people that are going, are you the same person on Sunday that you are the other six days, really? Because if they're looking at you and going, I don't know, God hasn't been able to fix you, transform you, give you hope and new life. So why am I interested? Why would I want or desire to be a part of a, a, a religion, a relationship, however they may perceive it as a non-believer? Why would I want to be a part of something that hasn't actually changed you, that hasn't actually done anything for you? And so this is something that we have to take so seriously, you guys. We have to recognize that God is making his appeal through us. And so the fight for stability, right? We're talking about being unstable. The fight for stability is in this is that we need to be regularly appraising ourselves, diagnosing ourselves, allowing God to transform us, and we need to be able to help restore and reconcile other people. So it's not that we can never be looking into another person's situation, but we do also need to first be looking at and diagnosing ourselves. And so what I have found is that the key ingredient to keep those things in balance, to be able to do both, is humility. And so I want to take us to the life of Jesus because he was fully man and he was fully God. So if anyone has been able to grasp what it is to have that kind of balance, it's in Jesus. And so in Luke 19, we have this story. It's the story of Zacchaeus. And many of us have heard this. It's a common one in children's Bibles because it's kind of fun to talk about the short guy in a tree. I mean, I'm right, aren't I? And so Jesus is going through this town, and Zacchaeus, his job, his profession was as a tax collector. And I think we don't fully understand it in our context because a tax collector is someone that sits in an office in the town hall building, and, you know, they just push papers around. But in this, in this situation, Zacchaeus is a Jew, and he is collecting taxes from other Jews on behalf of the oppressive Roman government that was occupying them. And they were known to be cheats, greedy, traitors, because not only would they collect the taxes, I mean, that would seem okay, 
but they would charge more for the taxes against their own people, give the Romans what they were due, and then skim off the top. And they often became very wealthy, and usually you would see that in how they lived, dressed, the house that they were in, the food they would eat. And so they were despised by their fellow Jews. And so we pick up in verse 5. When Jesus came by through this town, Zacchaeus is up in the tree at this point, and it says that he's up in the tree because he's short, but I, I kind of wonder if the author, Luke, left out maybe what Zacchaeus' motive was, because obviously he didn't know it. I have a feeling that no one in that crowd was helping that particular short guy get to the front of the concert, if you know what I mean. No one was going to help him get closer to Jesus. They were not interested and mingling with this guy. And so he knew if he wanted to see Jesus, he needed to get above the crowd and into a tree. So Jesus is walking by, and he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. And I wonder if it says that because maybe Zacchaeus was often called by some not-so-nice names. Jesus says, Zacchaeus, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. This is cool. Verse 7, but the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. How ironic, the people being critical of Jesus for not being critical. That's what they would have expected him to do because isn't this greedy guy what's wrong with the world? Why would you associate with him? In verse 8, meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I, give I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord, and if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man, Jesus, came to seek and save those who are lost. And I love this story because, honestly, it, what a dramatic turnaround. This man was not forced into the profession of being a greedy tax collector. He chose that profession. And all of a sudden, he comes close to Jesus. And just like that, 180 degrees, he's just going to give away the wealth that he's been hoarding. He's actually going to make things right. And there isn't a lot of detail in that passage as far as what else happened when Jesus and Zacchaeus were having dinner. What did Jesus say? Was there some really deep inspirational thing? I don't know. Maybe it was just the love and acceptance. Maybe it was Jesus's integrity. Maybe it's that Zacchaeus looked and said, you're the real thing. That is a living gospel. You are proof that what you are saying is actually what you are doing, what you are walking out. And that's what we need to try to be as Christ followers, as people of integrity that are the same person in a crowd and the same person out to dinner with a friend. In your notes, when we identify something that is wrong, our goal should be to bring people closer to Jesus. That is where transformation happens. So what can we do about this? What's the brass tax to actually living out this sort of life, restoring and reconciling people to God? We're going to go to Luke again, um, chapter 6, 39 through 42. And this is Jesus speaking. And this time, um, he's not, this isn't just an, uh, an account of a story. This is a parable, which means an illustration. So Jesus says to his disciples, can a blind man lead a blind man? Anybody? Of course not. <laughs> Will they not both fall into a pit? 
Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Because as we talked about before, it's easy to be critical. But guys, imagine how it would actually feel to have a log in your eye. I know we've talked about this parable before, and I've seen people, you know, hold a stick up to their eye, but ladies, anyone ever use one of these mascara? Have you ever stabbed yourself in the eye with one of these bad boys? It is not a pleasant experience. You know, you're going along trying to look all cute, and all of a sudden, you're, what happens? You're immediately tearing up. Your vision is getting blurry. You can't focus on anything else until you get that right, clean yourself up, and then, you know, try again, because beauty. And so, so imagine, so that's just a mascara wand. Now imagine anything bigger, and imagine leaving it in there right? Imagine not noticing something so large in your eye and deciding to live with it. And meanwhile, going around and saying, hey, you got like a little, a little hair there. Hey, there's a little fly in your eye. Meanwhile, you've left a log in your own. Imagine what would actually happen if you left a log in your eye. It probably wouldn't just make you tear up. You'd probably lose your vision. Your eye would get infected. You wouldn't be able to see much of anything. And that is what makes us a hypocrite. So moving on to the next verse, how can you say to your brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, the first, first thing you should do is take the log out of your own eye and then you will clearly be able to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So the conclusion in all of this is that there are two actions that we have to do. The first is we need to rightly and humbly appraise our situation and do some eye surgery. We need to take the log out of our eye. And the second is that we are called to help our brother remove the speck out of theirs. We are not exempt from helping other people, and we're not exempt from uncomfortable conversations to help bring people closer in line with God's word. But humility is the key ingredient. We are called to humbly appraise and adjust our own situation first. In your notes, repentance is the prerequisite for God's call to help restore others. You know, if we decide to be full-time critics of the world around us or even the world near us, we're, we're kind of like that, that person that in the middle of summer walks into a building with their sunglasses on and leaves the sunglasses on. Don't be that person. We're all silently judging you. I know we're not supposed to be critical, but you know, don't be that person. Being critical, we can fall into two different traps. There's the trap that I have the right to call you out, and then there's the other side of who am I to call you out? Where is the balance? The balance is in humility of dealing with yourself, letting God deal with you, and then saying, okay, hey, friend, let me help you into the right path. Let me help you into the way you should go. Let me help God transform your life into the person you were supposed to be. So God's plan, in addition to restoring and reconciling, is that we would examine ourselves. In 2 Corinthians 13, it says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. The definition of, of examine in this context is to see whether something is genuine. 
So we should be looking inward at ourselves and saying, is my faith genuine or am I just going through some sort of motions as part of some social club? Imagine a world, you guys, where our critical eye sees something out of place, sees something missing, sees something, something or someone that is hurting, and instead of sitting back in our comfortable couch with our comfortable blanket and snacks and pointing out what could have been better, we come closer to those people and say, come to Jesus. Follow me. I know the way to go. I've been here before. In 2 Corinthians 13, it says, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, strive for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace. And you know, that word sometimes is misconstrued to be like a silent night. Peace is when everything is still, but really peace is knowing that in the middle of a storm, I have a firm foundation. In the middle of a storm, I will not be moved. And so if we are able to, to do these things, to strive for full restoration, encourage one another, being of one mind, not cannibalizing one another, and living in peace, it says, then the God of love and peace will be with you. If you heard nothing else I said tonight, I need you to go home knowing this. That having a critical eye is not a sin, but lacking humility and disobeying God's call to restore and reconcile, that is, that is. Did you know that God gave us work to do? That he didn't just save us so that we could sit in comfort and label ourselves a Christian and say, I have a set of rules that I follow in my life. He saved us so that we could do the work that Jesus was doing when he was on this earth. Jesus literally said that when he left was, you guys will do even greater things after I'm gone. Do we take that seriously? He's given us the work essentially of being crisis marriage counselors. And that's hard work and not always successful work. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't follow God's command. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't follow his call to try to restore a brother, to, to try to reconcile the world and say, my life is living proof. Is our life living proof? Guys, it starts with us. We need to let God actually transform us. Take a look in the mirror, see what's stuck in your eye and be willing to fix it. We should not be wearing a log in our eye as some sort of badge of honor, like, you know, I'm a real authentic Christian. No, you're just a Christian that decided to leave a log in your eye. Guys, we're not supposed to live as the world lives. We're supposed to be the hope of the world. We're supposed to be the ones that people look to and go, okay, you've got something that I don't have and I want it. And remember that God's command to the person with the log in their eye is, is not to tuck their tail between their legs and, and go, you know, mourn in a dark room. It's to take the log out of your eye and then get to work. Take the log out of your eye and then help to restore your fellow believers and say, yep, I was there too. Let me help you. 
Let me show you the way to go. Follow me as I follow Christ. You know, God calls us higher. And we see this all throughout scripture when the Pharisees come to Jesus and they quote an old command or a law and they say, oh, well, this old law says, you know, you shouldn't commit adultery. And Jesus says, yeah, and also you shouldn't lust. Oh, and this command says that you shouldn't murder. And Jesus goes, yeah, also you shouldn't even hate. He's always up in the ante, calling us higher towards perfection, towards restoration and completeness. And he does the same thing when it comes to being critical. He calls us to use that, that keen observation to call people to him, to comfort those who are suffering and to build people up. He calls us to reconcile the world to him. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for how you have restored us, for all the ways that you have been patient with us as we ignore logs in our eye and you sit in frustration going, there's a better way. There's so much beauty in the world that I want you to see. Take the log out of your eye. God, I just, I want so badly for, for the world to see and know you. Help us to be representatives of a gospel that works. Help us to have courage as we have difficult conversation, conversations with those that we love. Help us to, instead of pulling back from what we know is messed up about the world, God, help us to lean in. Help us to step closer and pull those people to you. If you're here tonight and you don't yet follow Christ and you're on the edge and you're thinking about it, I just want you to know there is no time like the present. And so if you're thinking, you know, I wanna test out this gospel that works, I wanna give this a shot, now's the time. Pray with me. God, I know that I have been following my own way. God, I know that I've been following my own gut and my own instincts and it's not working out. God, I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. Forgive me of the ways that I have turned away from you. But today I choose to follow you. I choose to get on the right path. Thank you for your forgiveness, for your opportunity at a second chance and a third and a fourth. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.